0: Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarization of our communities, and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? What does a commended poet, dancer of the Indian classical form Katuk, outstanding legal academic and occasional writer in the hope punk story genre have in common? One person, it seems, who is also my guest on today's show, Bhumaka Billa. What stands out is Bhumaka's astonishing ability to communicate through dance, language and legal linguistics. She has a sharp eye on identity, whether it's her own as an Indian woman living in the UK, the gendered constraints on her female ancestors, gender and sexual politics today, social class or caste, and the digital identity that we now adopt or are arguably forced into. This is a voice that makes her mother proud because she is brave enough to speak out. This is a voice that sometimes makes me laugh because refreshingly, she simply says it as it is. But this is also a voice to take note of. In 2021, the BBC recognised Boomaka as one of Britain's most exciting emerging spoken word artists. She is in the business of observing and unravelling the intricacies of data politics, artificial intelligence and law, structural inequality, and the future we all face if we don't stand up for justice. Boom! It's Boomaka! (laughs) <laughs> hello Boommaker. wow
1: thank you so much for this is definitely one of the kindest introductions i've ever yeah thank you so much paula and it's it's lovely to be joining you
0: <laughs> it's you're very welcome and and of course it's all true and i do hope i can be your your official jingle it does amuse me when uh, we can play with boom it's boomer <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes definitely actually interestingly means earth
0: and oh really? Means
1: daughter of the earth. So um because Bhumi in Hindi means earth. So it's mm. it's quite, I think, um commensurate with the way you introduced
0: oh fantastic. What a lovely name to have, what a lovely meaning.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: So Bumaka, having mentioned your mum actually in the introduction, uh being proud of you, I wondered if um we could begin. With your poem, uh, "MA lives in me," and I wondered if when you wrote that, if it was an emotional response to both generational and geographic divides?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yes, thank you for the question, Paul. Actually, um, it was a poem that I wrote when um, I was uh, visiting. Uh, a friend, I was visiting India for and then I was not in Delhi. I was uh, in Agra for a wedding. and there I realized how much I had missed my parents living in the UK and obviously like it's, it, it, it seems to me it occurs to me that it's much easier to write about uh, my mother. Um, And I've been struggling to write about my father since then because I feel like uh, it's kind of unfair to have a poem dedicated to her and released everywhere on YouTube and everything. Um, And that poem actually came from a feeling of, yeah, just simply missing her and also like a very complex relationship that my parents have with my art, actually, because growing up, uh, they were very supportive of uh, my dancing endeavors. And then um, there was a point when I had to seriously make a choice um, in my profession, what what I do growing up. And I I had basically been brought up dreaming big, and I used to think I want to be the world's best dancer and all of that. But uh, practically speaking, when I had those conversations with my parents, um, you know, when I had to make serious choices, I was encouraged to pursue something that would give me financial independence and that would be much more practically relevant in the world. And I, that's how law happened. So, and then finally, I, I was also doing poetry secretly behind, scribbling things behind my notebooks and everything. And, Uh, It was only after I came to the UK that um, I began my poetry journey seriously. And since then, you know, my parents have been a bit scared as well. Um, I'm not going to lie because it's you know, there's there's such a chilling effect on freedom of speech, given the political environment we live in and um, A woman ferociously yelling on a screen about everything that's wrong with the world isn't something that parents are quite comfortable with coming from uh, the social capital that I come from. So um, it's it's kind of complex, but I, I like to believe that they're still proud and and they are. I, I mean, whenever I visit India, everyone is also talking about my poetry. It's primarily about my legal academia, but uh, sometimes it's about poetry as well. And it's very refreshing to see when they are proud of the poems that I write and not just because that I publish in journals. Yeah
0: yeah and it, and it's really interesting because um obviously there's there's lots of things for us to talk about but it does raise questions around courage um and conflict that may belong to you as as much as your family as your parents as as you've acknowledged um you know the social challenges involved Um, not necessarily bowing down to cultural norms. And again, thinking about this particular poem, "Ma Lives in Me, um, you actually refer to ancestral women telling us to shrink. And I thought that was a really interesting line. Um, It it feels like it's describing gender depression that's being passed down um, just to not rock the boat. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, 100%. It's actually... um much more prevalent um, than you can imagine, Paula. And I'm sure it's in all societies, but specifically in in the North Indian belt that I come from. Um, It's a very, you know, um, like patriarchal system and very kind of homogenous society where it's it's mostly men who define um, what families do. And, you know, there's like in... In Hindu family law as well, like all families are governed by Hindu personal laws, uh, um, Hindu families, and there's supposed to be a karta who's the head of the family, who's usually a male. And and that line in the poem that you quote actually comes from also my conversations with my grandmother, like my nani, my uh, mom's <laughs> mother. So it's, it's all those conversations. And, and growing up, they've been very kind of encouraging of me being more tolerant and that's I mean it's I'm not going to put, put 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 this on them because that's the society we live in. And growing up, I think their biggest worry is how will I adjust um, you know going to a new family if I were to get married and then yeah, I was constantly told to tolerate. Um, injustice and oppression and everything that men do and it's so normalized it's like kind of infuriating how normal it is for um, a male figure to just sit and watch television all day while the female works like takes care and all does all the care work without being acknowledged without being paid and it's almost taken for granted um so it's it's the the gender roles are like very deeply ingrained um in the kind of society I come from so it's all it it has a lot more context but yeah Um,
0: yeah no absolutely because I I was curious actually um about what your relationships would be like not just with your mother but like you say with your grandmother or 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 should there have been a great grandmother around or aunties even um Because you can understand the fears they may have um, because it seems to me the risk could potentially be around alienation. And I wondered how you negotiate that because you're trying not to alienate yourself from your own family, but you're also not trying to alienate yourself from your own beliefs and your own belief in equality.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a a very um, sort of tricky line to tread in a way. I I, I think it comes more from anger than it comes from courage because, um, I mean, I'm the only child in my family and I'm the eldest of my cousins. And I've always, growing up, felt this need to kind of set a precedent which changes the narratives of the way our families have functioned traditionally. And um, it's just, I mean... Yeah, I think my relationships, I've always like looked for female role models. And unfortunately, I haven't had many female role models in the sense that I wanted, like in the professional who've achieved the kind of professional success. um, I have, you know, seeked all my life because everyone is a housewife in my family. And um, even the few females who work, you know, are still kind of, um, in the traditional sense, uh, they always succumb to gender roles and everything. So it's, it's a very tricky line. And when you talk about alienation as well, I think it's, um, I've always been supported quite, like I've had immense support from my, um, like family members, relatives, uh, my parents, when it comes to art as a hobby, but, um, I don't think, um, I mean, this is almost like an alternate world that I'm living in the UK, which very few people understand the depth of. And um, I think my parents are probably the only people in my family who know how serious my poetry is becoming and um, that I'm I'm taking it seriously as almost an alternate career path because this isn't even, you know, this doesn't even occur to um yeah, people in my family, oh, you can be an artist. Like nobody even thinks about being becoming an artist, you know. It's just not accessible that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and unfortunately, I think it's something that is shared quite often in the UK, you know, that, that choosing the arts is somehow seen as inadequate. There's a lot of prejudice wrapped around it. And actually, something you touched on um, is something I'm very interested in, in terms of your experience of womanhood, if you like, how that changes when you're in India or when you're in Britain, you know, as something that you might express in your in your poetry. But do you feel that you're constantly adapting to a shifting identity?
1: Hundred um, percent, actually. And in fact, I think I I was very young when I decided that I want to move out um, of Delhi. Uh, specifically and broadly even India, if that was possible, growing up like whatever imaginations I had, because I wanted to reshape my identity as well because i I was always kind of um you know how like um if if there's if you if you really enjoy a creative pursuit to the extent that you can't imagine living without it it's almost like you want to tap more into that part of you. And um, as you said, like that kind of courage to tap more into it and to lean more towards it also comes from privilege and i am very lucky to come from that kind of privilege where i had the educational background to kind of move out and uh, apply for a master's degree and i had the kind of resources to you know i had the internet i had people to talk to i had language um because english is almost like um, a luxury uh, if you if if you're in india and if you want to apply for education abroad and all, also like caste class all these kind of privileges um And I think my identity has shifted in the sense that I I still remember when I I came to the UK, I recently read Virginia Woolf's, uh, A Room of One's Own, uh, which has been on my list for a while. And I read it last year and it occurred to me that Cambridge had almost become a room of my own. Like for me, simply because I felt much more safer here, um, I could access a lot more public spaces. Um, I used to... Um, be very interested in long distance running back in school. But after after a certain age, I stopped going for running because the public spaces weren't as safe for women. Um, You know, people used to scan. And I was the only woman of that age running in, in the park near my house. And it still is the case, very unfortunately. So when I came here and I remember I went for my first run, I cried after that run because I couldn't, I was so overwhelmed with the complex relationship I had with my home, because everyone was, you know, I was interacting with here, uh, specifically South Asian men would, they would always, you know, talk about their home so fondly and they would want to go back. And I, on the other hand, was feeling this very weird kind of freedom from the male gaze, from, um, from public spaces where, where I could access the public spaces a lot more. So it was almost like the sky was, absolutely mine here in a certain way but it wasn't the earth wasn't mine because the soil this is not the soil where I was, I was born so that run made me wonder a lot about uh, this kind of complexity that I was trying to navigate at the point and that gave I think that led me to write another one of my poems which is away from home where I kind of tap more into that complexity as well
0: yeah yeah and actually um It also reminds me um, of some of your phrases in your poem, 16, um, which, despite Britain offering you perhaps a greater sense of freedom in terms of safety, although it's interesting, of course, because the statistics on women not being safe are very high. And we also, as I'm sure you're well aware, have serious issues now in the safety of our own police force so despite that in comparison you have that sense of safety or safety from the male gaze but you do mention that Britain also brings in another experience that isn't easy to accept frowning upon anything that is brown
1: (laughs) yeah um yeah I think uh, so i i'd say two things here one i'm like my experience of the uk has been very kind of tainted with the the social bubble that i live in which is cambridge which is extremely elite extremely international um very educated and also like upper upper class people all around me so that might actually have a lot to do with how safe I've felt in the UK. But it, at the end, the second thing is at the end of the day, it's also very relative. And I think um, my experiences of having interacted with, um, whatever little I have with communities beyond Cambridge has actually made me feel a bit like an outsider Some sometimes. I haven't, I wouldn't say that I've faced like blatant racism or anything like that, um, which also I think I, I'm very, I think it's it's partly because of um, my uh, like class background and the kind of resources I have, but also partly because my, again, my experience is very limited to, uh, the Cambridge uh, social bubble. But whatever little I've interacted outside, I've always felt a bit of an outsider, especially because in in poetry rooms and most of my experiences have been very extremely positive, but there are spaces where I feel... Um, simply because of my accent. And in most of these spoken word poetry spaces, I'm probably, I'm yet to meet someone who's not a native English speaker. Um, So my accent becomes a very big part of my identity. All of a sudden, it kind of magnifies as part of my identity when I'm in these rooms. And English not being my first language becomes um, a bit of, I mean, these spaces are very inclusive and kind and the people are amazing. But there are, you know, there's always this looming kind of it's a it's a weird feeling to have because I always know that I don't belong even if the people are really trying hard to make me feel that I do um but it's always there's something always you know looming in the air that yeah I I mean I can like people can tell that I'm not from here you know Mm. so that is something that I um I find it a bit difficult to navigate in these spaces as well
0: Mm. Well, actually, it's the same poem, 16, that um, raises, I think, um, a very uh, important um, issue, um, depending on how much you might want to expand on it. But you refer to your white male therapist who asked you to stop wanting to be seen. And for me, that resonated with the same advice from ancestral women advising their daughters to shrink. I'm wondering what your response was and perhaps it was different then to what it is now.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't really made that connection in my head, but it makes a lot of sense now that you say it. And it's very interesting, Paula, that since since the first sort of um, release of that poem, I have kind of changed Um, that line and I've removed I deliberately chose to remove uh, a kind white man from the poem in the recent uh, performances Um, and that was partly because I mean growing up in my artistic journey I'm I'm still learning to separate my art from who I am and in that sense I, I treat my poems as craft now but back then when I actually wrote it I was quite I mean, I was quite angry in the sense that I I didn't know I was a bit helpless. I didn't know what to do because I hadn't really considered positionality. And that was the first time I took therapy. And the the first time I took therapy was in the UK, um, you know, uh, with and my therapist was a white man. And and at that point, I didn't really it didn't really occur to me that it's because I mean that gap in identity makes so much of difference in how people see issues and um, how people can relate to lived experiences. And that is also something that I'm currently exploring in my legal research as well, like how the identities of judges and lawyers and everybody who's in a position of power in a particular context how their identities and lived experiences influence the way they treat problems before them and how do they bring their own lived experiences and how does that impact empathy and their approaches to solving problems and all of those things. So it was very complex at that time for me to comprehend and it just came out as, again, like an angry rant, (laughs) which is what most of my poems are at the moment. And I'm trying to keep that. I'm trying to bring more joy. But I don't know how. It seems to me that it's much more complex to write about joy uh, than to write about pain and anger because I've always treated my art as a catharsis but okay I'm I'm kind of derailing from here but yeah going back to that I I do feel that positionality matters a lot more and um, but I, I chose to remove that simply because that's not how every experience of mine has been and that I also realised that I had certain biases that I need to... I still am, you know, attempting to unlearn and shed. Um, but until we get there, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to treat my poems more as craft than as a personal story. I think I'm in that journey.
0: Mm. Well, I, I really wondered exactly what he meant by saying stop wanting to be seen and whether in fact your work as a poet and a, a spoken word poetry in particular is actually a direct response to to that what do you think he meant stop wanting to be seen um
1: i i think it just means and this is something that I've been told a lot, actually, by people who really care about me, actually. Even like, for for instance, even my father, Like um, they often tell me to chill out, you know. <laughs> um, because whenever I write an angry poem, um, they're obviously concerned that I'm overthinking this and, you know, it's affecting my own mental health and this not, um, you know, this desperate feeling to to be seen, to be felt like to feel like I belong and all of, to to reclaim these spaces. I think, again, like I'm going to go back to positionality here. It just doesn't even occur to them how angry it makes us, you know, and growing up when I would have these conversations with my parents that I want to get out of this place, uh, they would usually tell me that, oh, you can choose to be happy wherever you go. And it's not, it's, it's within you, it's, it's how you perceive and treat your own life that's going to determine how happy you are rather than the place. And as much as that is right to a very large extent, I also feel like um, these kind of advices come if, if the place you've lived in so far has favored your positionality. And, and if you've grown up in a certain kind of privilege, and if um, you say that to a person who does not have the same identity, It's very hard to comprehend, to step into their shoes and see that they may not have had the same experiences and they actually might be seeking happiness from outside because there's only so much you can like no matter where you are, the social political context of your lived experience is always going to be predominated by external factors, right? There's only so much you can do on your own. And I think it is that gap that needs to be bridged in most of the sort of institutions that govern our social lives, that determine how we live. And even in these personal conversations between therapists and um, people, mentors and mentees, parents and daughters and children generally, and, and it's across all identity vectors. It's just, it's not just gender, you know. I think there's a lot more to be done there. And art is, for me personally, has been a means to bridge that to some extent.
0: Yes. And I wondered if that was why spoken word poetry has made particular sense to you um, and perhaps in terms of, you know, supporting mental health. I I really like your description of spoken word poetry as an elastic trampoline. Is that mental and linguistic freedom? It's,
1: I mean, when I call it an elastic trampoline, I'm specifically referring to Actually, I'm referring to two kinds of like two key features that I think spoken word poetry has, and there might be a, there's definitely a lot more to it. But that's how I comprehend it. The first is it's extremely accepting in because it's such a nascent art form. It's really accepting of diversity of voices, and because of its origins in in protest poetry and its its origins in uh, the Black be- Movement and everything, it's 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 meant to be diverse, it's meant to be angry voices, speaking to power, speaking truth to power, speaking against structural injustice and all of that. So in that sense, it's like as wide as you can stretch it, it can include diversity in in, in ways that I've rarely seen other art forms do. And the second sense in which I describe it as a trampoline is how it's, because it's so nascent and it's Uh, supposed to be words that are written to be performed. It's very accepting of cross-disciplinary work. And you can bring in whatever you like within a poem. Um, It gives you the space to bring in the most you, you know, on the stage. And you can choose to sing, you can choose to dance with the poem, you can choose to beatbox, uh, like Jasmine Gardosi does. I love her work. Um, And, I mean, it just gives a lot of space and you can stretch it in whichever direction, however wide you want. And you can do whatever you want with that craft because you have a mic and you have a voice. So, um, yeah, those are the two senses in which I refer to it as an elastic trampoline.
0: Mm, And also, um, I imagine it's almost um, an exact opposite description, if you like, of... um, academic language. I noticed on on Twitter, you you raised um, at one point, how exposure to spoken word spaces reminds you of how toxic, purist, exclusive and elitist academic spaces are or can be. And it does feel to me that your life might sometimes feel, your academic and creative life might sometimes feel like a tug of war. <laughs> um, that's,
1: uh, I think that's, um, that's very true, actually. And I was, I thought a bit about this, obviously, because um, it's also very, it makes my life very hectic as well, because I'm trying to almost build these two alternate careers, which require completely different kinds of um, parts of me, you know. Um, But more than a tug of war, I think I, when I see, when I see my artistic practice, I think I'm looking into a mirror and I'm using my own experiences to study more of myself and who I am. And that mirror allows me to explore um, my own identity and lived experiences in some ways, um, but when I look at my academic work, it's almost like a it's it's a window rather than a mirror where I'm using um, you know myself to study the world rather than the other way around. So when obviously um, with a mirror, I have a lot more freedom, you know, um, to choose the tools and. To, to study myself, and, and I'm, I'm thinking this as I'm speaking, so it might not be as well-thought or nuanced an analogy as I want it to be, but that's just the starting of how I reconcile these two aspects of my life at the moment. And with, with the window, however, there's a lot more that's const- constraining me to, I mean, it, a lot depends on how big the window is, who are who support, like the people who are supporting me to study the world and how much access do I have. And one very sort of classic example of um, the difference between art and academia is the way publishing works. Um, and as I mean, in art as well, I, I, there's an obvious disclaimer here. In art as well, there's high art, you know, which uh, is hard to access, which is um you to you you need to have the resources. You need to have the educational background, for instance, to understand um, poems which are published on the page, and which is what I love about spoken word because it's just um, accessible as an art form to people who might not come from a background where they've you know read about metaphors and where they can uh, deconstruct the layers of language. And it's it's a lot more about experience um, and the audience rather than. Um, the linguistic ability of the performer, I think, and and differentiating it from academia. Academia is, if we were were to put it on a spectrum, then academia is complete opposite because with the way academic publishing works and academic institutions work as well, it's just extremely elitist in, in its form, in its design, in its implementation. And I think I think academia has a lot to learn from spoken word when it comes to that because uh, w- the internet has changed a lot for sure. And um, even even in spoken word poetry, for instance, and I, I um, argue this because specifically in the context of what TikTok has done for the Indian audiences and for the Indian artists, because TikTok is something that anyone can, you know, it has reduced the consumability of um, meal sized artistic performances to bite-sized artistic performance so you don't need as much concentration for instance or as much um, ability to comprehend and understand it, it has deconstructed and sort of dismantled that structural elitism in art to a lot of extent because any person in a village due to now more bandwidth of the internet can just pick up their phone and perform whatever they want. So everyone has a voice now because of the internet. But that's that kind of penetration of internet um, and accessibility has unfortunately not happened in academia because I think because of institutionalization and because there are still so many gatekeepers who ensure every single day that um, the it's it's. It's all about money. It's all about power, access, resources, and everything. You know, you can't. If you were to Google search any like complex term today, there's a very high likelihood that you won't be able to access more than half the academic academic resources out there because you're you're sitting somewhere that's not Cambridge, for instance. You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, perhaps um, in terms of self-publishing, this is why dance is perhaps increasingly more accessible. And and I'm very interested in the fact that you're a classically trained Katuk dancer. Um, So I wondered um, if you might like to talk about that a bit more, the relationship between Dance and poetry, and and perhaps that's even from a therapeutic point of view. Yeah, um, I think
1: from well, I have a lot of thoughts on this actually, um, so I can talk about uh, talk about dance from a personal perspective first, and uh, then we can maybe move on to more like social, um, political aspects of how Indian classical dance works, uh, which is very parallel to I think I'd say academia in some ways. So personally, I think growing up, I was a very nerdy kid and um, <laughs> and I was obviously, um, I, I was a bit, you know, arrogant as well because I used to get marks and I used to score well in exams and all of that, which made me feel very lonely at times because I was very judgmental and, you know, snobbish. So I think art became, at that point, my dance became as a means for me to express myself and... Um, while my social life was kind of, uh, not ideal, um, according to teenage standards, <laughs> I was usually finding myself more free on the stage. Um, and growing up, I was, uh, I, I used to dance a lot at Indian weddings, you know, how ba- big fat Indian weddings are, um. Where most dancers discover themselves growing up, and that's when a lot of people started going to my parents and telling them, "Oh, you should, you know, put her to classes. She looks, she looks good. She looks like she would be good at it." And I think that's when um, the struggle of my parents started because um, although we come from class privilege and caste privilege, we still don't have the kind of social, economic capital which most of these artist circles in India have and my parents for it almost took them like almost i think 5 years to find me a, a good dance teacher a guru so to speak who would you know who was who actually knew um, the nitty-gritty of the art form and and at that age i remember telling them oh you know there are a lot of indian classical dance forms i think eight about there are eight classical dance forms and kathak was one of them and uh, going to the school that i went to which was a really nice and one of the poshest schools back then in delhi i had been exposed to two of the two of the indian classical dance forms Natyam and kathak and at the age of almost i think 8 i told them i want to pursue kathak because that's where more speed is and i i can you know take more spins it, so it's it's similar to ballet in the sense that it requires you to spin quite a lot um, and um, it, it's much more fast in its, because like it has two parts the dance form, um, there's Nrit, which means dance. And then there's Abhinay, which means expressions. And from what I knew back then, Bharat Natyam has had a lot more expressions, whereas Kathak had a lot more dance. And I wanted to dive deep into the footwork and, you know, the, the body movement and all of that. And I picked Kathak and then it took my parents five years. I kept hopping from one teacher to another and nobody was good enough. And I kept wanting to learn more and I finally found um, a a, a guru a really nice good uh like who was who was teaching like serious Kathak classes at when i was in ninth standard which was pretty late actually from the standards of indian classical dance training but when i found them then i almost it was almost like i had finally found something that was challenging and i and i kind of it challenged me to the extent that i I kept practicing it more and more and kept getting better and I was scoring well, even in dance exams, you know, there's theory exams and there are, there are practical exams. And then when I was on the stage, it was almost like I could be anyone I wanted to be, you know, and um, I have always been a performer in that sense. I love the freedom of switching those identities and forgetting in that moment that I'm that snobbish girl that everybody hates in the class. (laughs) 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 So, um, yeah, and I could... And also you're
0: being seen.
1: Exactly. Like I was, I was being seen and I could almost reclaim the space and the spotlight in that moment. And Mm. I could, I was, it's almost like I was given these four minutes to be who I was, to say what I wanted to say through movement and through my gungrus, which are the dancing bells, which um, you're supposed to wear in most Indian um, dance forms. Mm, so yeah. it, was, it was almost like a means of, a tool of empowerment for me. And I love, I, I, I learned a lot of self-love from my dance because that gave me that space and the freedom to be who I wanted to be.
0: It's very interesting uh, and touching on empowerment because Katuki's, um as you were saying, one of the eight major forms of of classical dance. And it's a really significant form of storytelling. So Katuk dancers were also simply known as as storytellers. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting to me is that form of storytelling was perhaps laying a foundation to you, storytelling as a poet, but also in terms of empowerment, has it paved the way to poetry being a radical act in some way? And is it possible that women in the Katuk dance tradition today can use the dance form for protests or to change boundaries or to tell different stories?
1: I think that's, yeah, definitely true. Um, I think actually any art form I feel exp- like gives you a kind of voice even if it's not literally uh, appeasing to the oral senses or whatever like it's even if you're not using your voice in the literal sense it gives you a means to express and i think just the choice of using that voice is a sort of a courageous act or even an act of protest in some ways if, if your voice has been traditionally oppressed from uh, yeah from your background or 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 those kind of identity vectors but I I think my dance borrowed I I borrow a lot from my dance and my poetry as well and I think I attribute a major reason of why I am a stage poet so to speak if we were to separate those two categories stage poets from page poets then I think it's majorly because of my dance, because Kathak, as you as you mentioned, comes means storytelling, because it comes from the word Sanskrit word Katha, which means story, and it has its origins in storytelling. Which um, I mean, it has its own sort of history of how um, these storytellers or Kathakars used to be male um, before uh, the Mughal era, and uh, the the art form itself used to be a form of sort of worship. So people used to dance and tell stories about Hindu gods, which was also very, you know, Brahmanical in its viewpoints. And even the agents in the system both were very deep-rooted in the caste system. And then uh, when the Mughal era started, the dance form shifted to being a more of a means of entertainment in Mughal courts. And that's when it was the, 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 it, it kind of lost its status, sacred status, and only the working class would then perform in these Mughal courts. And that's also when the male actors started reducing in numbers and it kind of shifted to, you know, females. And then there was a whole sort of, um, shift in the way kathak itself was viewed because then it became a means to appease the male gaze in the mughal courtrooms and um that's i think that's when uh, the when the britishers finally like invaded and um mm-hmm. during the british rule it was further degraded because that was seen as almost a disgrace to the Indian womanhood because there was a lot of eroticism, sensualism, um, appeasing to the male gaze. The art form almost became a means for that. And the female dancers were labelled as the which is which is a term that now is attributed to prostitution. And it was only after post-independence when the entire movement was sort of revived. But uh, when it came to revival, and then when there was a shift from um kathak being a form of entertainment to back to it being a form of you know respectable classical dance form of god worshipping and all of that. Again men took over. And which is why like all the traditional Kathak gurus are are male. And which, by the way, who've been recently called out by a lot of dancers during the Me Too movement as well. And I think that Guru Shishya tradition in Indian classical dance form, and I might get cancelled for this actually, but is, is, in my view, just a means to maintain that gatekeeping in Indian classical dance forms. But I think I've again a little bit <laughs> from what I was talking about by going into this history.
0: But no, I think I think the history is is really significant. And also there is an extremely difficult historic relation relationship with Britain, isn't there? When you know you've touched upon the partition of India and the, the brutal force that was um involved um at the hands of Britain. Um, as you were saying, the way that Distorted, if you like, um, you know, the classical dance tradition as Katuk as just one example. But we're also talking, you know, deep, harmful, outrageous separations of, of lives and, and brutal force used against women, against against people. Um, and yet today, Britain, of course, now can extend some kind of shelter and independence to you. So I think the historic context is significant i think it it really does relate to if you like the two bodies that you sometimes refer to you know that you're you're constantly kind of in transition between two worlds whether it's India and Britain whether it's um history and contemporary life um you're trying to exist aren't you in In different bodies and in different worlds
1: Mm -hmm. yes absolutely I think um, there's the dichotomy of my academic and artistic practice and as you rightly mentioned there's the dichotomy of uh, the places that I'm struggling to call home um, with India and um, the UK and then there's the dichotomy of who do I dance for or who do I perform for or who do I write for um, is it is it for myself or is it for the audience? You know, and those kind of questions are, yeah, I think there are they are basically a lifelong project, um, and I think that's where the joy lies as well because I'm constantly trying to reconcile these different identities in my head and uh, exploring them through these different means of curiosity that I have these tools that I have at my disposal. Um, how do I reconcile them? How do I bring together? Um, how do I bring together law art and, um, my dancing, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's
0: yeah. And it, it almost feels like, um, curiosity, being able to be curious, being able to pursue your curiosity is in many ways a privilege that perhaps your ancestral mothers didn't have.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, Paula. And it's, you know, it's so surprising to me when um, I meet women of a generation before mine, um, in that particular belt, coming um, coming not from political families, super educated families, mostly coming from partition families, actually, who who are almost always housewives and they have these secret hobbies that they've lost along the way because they've spent their entire lives dedicated to men, children, their in-laws and their families, you know, they were married off at early ages. And, um, and now they are, you know, whenever I, I speak to them, I, I make like, You know, I visit my relatives and um, my parents' friends visit our homes and I'm always super interested to only talk to the women. And I ask them, oh, what do you do, you know, apart from um, your housework, apart from the chores? And they always say, oh, I, you know, I used to write poems. I used to write stories. They always have something that they used to do, but they've lost along the way. And I just feel like it's, it's so sad because when i see the men in these families they always have something going on uh, besides their work they always go for um, you know a game of cricket with their friends on sundays or they have other passions they still write you know or they sing or something or the other or they paint but women kind of have almost it's it's really it really bothers me and disturbs me to see that they've lost these identities that they used to have um to become what the society wanted them to become um and and they don't have the luxury or the luxury to be curious you know because they are so busy catering to their gender roles um that they they almost yeah i feel like and i i remember like to prepare for the podcast um i was sitting in like in my college peter house i was sitting in the garden and with spring flowers all around me. And I was reading a book by Dame Krishna on reshaping art, who, by the way, talks a lot about like how uh, Indian classical art forms have sort of reflected and um, echoed the power chambers that exist uh, outside the boundaries of art systems. But yeah, I just wanted to give him a shout as well because of uh, the excellent work that he's been doing. But yeah, I was reading this book and it just occurred to me, Paula, that how many women coming from the kind of background that I come from will have the luxury to sit in a garden and read a book of poetry or a book on art, you know, just to pursue their intellectual interest um, in an environment where they don't have to constantly worry about what they are wearing, with where they don't have to navigate the public spaces, the male gaze, and it just occurred to me how much privilege it takes to be curious
0: yeah that's yeah that's right and and it's uh it's and yeah yeah it's another reason why it's so important to even revisit what we think curiosity means in a socio political context even and would you say some of what you were saying is reflected in your bollywood challenge, dear bollywood, your sincerely
1: yeah i think um I do attribute a lot of um the subtle sexism (laughs) that exists um, in the families that I interact with back in India to Bollywood because it's the representation of women. Um, You pick up any average Bollywood movie, Paula, and you'll see, even if it's a, you know, not a story about a male, macho hero, superhero, whatever, even then the representation of women is always skewed. They're always, you know, tools to... They're always just decorative pieces around the man, and the story is written with the male. Um, it's it's a very homogeneous representation of an average protagonist in any any form of storytelling, and Bollywood is yeah represents that perfectly. And um, there's this another scholar, Shayana Bhattacharya, who's done who's recently written a book on. Um, she she interviewed a lot of women from different backgrounds, socio cultural backgrounds, caste backgrounds, and she interviewed them, but she talked to them through uh, Bollywood. And she basically used um, Shah Rukh, who's one of the biggest, you know, film stars in Bollywood, and also one of the biggest voices when it comes to talking about women's rights and feminism and all of that. Um, and she she spoke to all these women through conversations about Shah Rukh because that is one means that kind of transcends the boundaries of class, caste, privilege, culture, all of these things, religion, you know. Um, and that, that is the impact that Bollywood has in, in our country. And uh, it, it is astonishing to read that book and to see how um, no matter where women come from, they always are seeking the same things. They're always seeking freedom to exist. Uh, they're always seeking freedom to use their voice they're always seeking freedom to have more financial resources to access the things they like to do which is as simple as going to the theater to watch a sharuk film for instance so yeah which is which is where the uh, bollywood also comes from where i was just angry at having grown and bought into these ideas that oh i i want a prince charming and you know my life would be successful in the traditional sense of the term when I finally find myself a good man, which is basically every average plot, um, convention plot of a Bollywood movie. And I was just mad of, of being deprived of stories about powerful women because I didn't have these role models in my family. Where else do you look if you don't have it in your immediate you know, circles? You look to culture, you look to more art, you look to things that you have access to. And uh, when you don't have access to go to these theatres and watch, you know, woke, so to speak, uh, plays and woke uh, paintings and galleries and all of these things, you go to Bollywood. And if Bollywood is telling these young girls (laughs) these kind of stories, then it's pretty obvious that they're going to grow up not having any role models whatsoever around them.
0: And you will be one of the emerging voices that are are helping to show that there are more options. And it's interesting that in your own creative process, you did turn your hand um, briefly to the hope punk genre when you wrote your short story, Monsoons of Hope. And because of the role uh, spoken word poetry has for you in terms of experience, Expressing anger or frustrations, uh, the uh, the oppressive nature of social injustices, and so on. How did you how did you kind of renegotiate, if you like, expressing that anger in the hope punk genre, where in fact acts of kindness is the rebellious act in that genre.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i know that's very interesting thanks for asking me that paula and uh but before i talk about my hope punk genre i also want to just flag that uh i think it's a lot of burden to um you know to to say that i am going to be one of those examples because i think the kind of privilege that I have, the kind of economic capital and social mobility that my family has had over the years is very skewed representation of women in my country. And that's not what most girls have access to. Even this podcast, I think there are so many girls that I'd want, that I'd want who would hear this, but they can't because they don't have access to internet. They don't have access to English. you know. So, So having said that, I just wanted to flag that out there. Um, but there's a lot more work being done by really amazing female artists. Um, and there's a lot of like pop spoken word culture that's coming up in India now. Uh, and there are more sort of uh, representation of female hip hop artists like uh, Shrushti Tavre. And there are a lot more like female artists coming up who are going to be much more relatable, you know, to the masses, so to speak, in the country. Um yeah, and then coming back to Hope Park, I think it's, it was a really um, interesting project for me because as part of my research, I applied to the Berkman Klein um, uh, Institute for Internet and Society and there we were discussing digital identity and one of the research outputs was supposed to be a speculative fiction story. And that was my first attempt at writing any story. And hope punk is a subgenre of speculative fiction, which basically talks about um, the future world in ways which are not dystopian and which deliberately uh, requires you to weave into the story like radical kindness, as you mentioned, and um, positive change or optimism and communal responses to challenges that exist today. So I I think it was a very interesting stint because first of all, um, talking positively about future and about the world doesn't come naturally to me because (laughs) I'm always ranting about some of the other things in my poems. But um, it was challenging for that particular reason and also for just writing the story itself, like designing characters, designing plots, giving it a structure. um, It required me to think in a very sort of straight jacket way, uh, which is, again, I'm not saying uh, that's the only way to write stories, but that's how I found it challenging. Um, But yeah, the challenge of kindness, I I ended up writing about um, communal divides between Hindus and Muslims in Delhi. Uh, which I haven't, I've deliberately stayed away from naming in the story itself because I didn't want to, while I still wanted to locate it in a cultural context, I didn't want to limit the scope of the story uh, to a geographical space. Um, But the the way I ended up weaving hope is, again, I explored the theme of daughterhood. And while um, researching on digital identity, I imagined a world where basically automation or AI, actually, not automation. AI will determine who gets access to which kind of resources. And with the kind of data surveillance we have in societies today, it is very much likely that um, in future health-related decisions, governance decisions will largely depend on all of this data and all of these AI systems that are currently being trained on data sets that are skewed Again, um, echoing and reinforcing the power gaps that exist. Um, but yeah, having all those issues issues in mind, I ended up writing a story of how the, the solution is going to come from the community and how it is writers and um, artists and poets who are going to be finally, you know, solving these problems. And not just solving these problems, like not single-handedly, but... Um, will that's where the uprising will come from that's where the protest starts. you know a voice that was courageous enough to speak truth to, to power and um yeah, so it was all uh, that's the context of the hope punk genre, but it was pretty damn challenging to write about timers yeah
0: yeah yeah it, it's very it's very interesting exercise because as you were saying it, it in many ways will just feel easier to. To vent, to vent anger and to have the justification to be angry. But it is an interesting repositioning, isn't it? To respond in a rebellious way by prioritizing, if you like, hope, not delusional hope, but nevertheless not giving up on hope. And you've spoken um, about art um, as a social system, for example, um, you know, similar to the. British arts elitism that that we suffer from and it's interesting that now as artificial intelligence races ahead i whether that challenges your perspective again on if you like anger versus hope because how hopeful do you feel that we can protect the authenticity of the arts, our voices speaking to truth and power in terms of the level of control that AI seems to be rapidly acquiring?
1: So I think um, I'm going to be honest, Paula, here, I haven't really made up my mind on where, which side of the debate I'm currently on. But But before that, I would just briefly capture what the two sides of the debate are and where my thinking process lies at the moment. I think one is a bit more positive because with uh, more AI, for instance, uh, my dad now uses ChatGPT to write poems about me. (laughs) which is a bit creepy because I'm a poet and it angers me that, oh, how can, like, this is not, you know, this is not legit. Like, how can you do this? (laughs) Because it it, it takes away a lot from the process itself. So it it depends largely on how you define art to begin with. Do you see it as a more output-driven exercise or do you see it as the process? And being an artist, myself which by the way has taken me a while to get here where I can reclaim the word artist and call myself one I do definitely think the process matters a lot more because I've seen art as mostly catharsis rather than a means to communicate something um but at the same time I do acknowledge the value of art just in outputs as well especially when art is trying to be a message or um trying to speak truth to power. It's it's outputs that matter equally, if not more than the processes, because processes are individual centric and they are for the artist, whereas the outputs are for the receivers, for the audience, for the public. Um, So I think with more sort of AI driven processes, it's art might just become more accessible um, in the way that, everyone can be creative or everyone at least can have the means or the tools to build something that they couldn't before or to create something that they couldn't before. So more people growing up might now, more, more children, for instance, might grow up to be, um, to, to have, to be empowered enough to think that they can create because there are tools like, um, yeah, for, for creating visual art, for music, For poetry, for language, all of these things. But the second aspect of this then is a bit more negative in my head because I feel like with the advent of AI um, intervening with these creative processes, what we are actually doing is we are shifting power from artists and individuals to then um, social, political institutions, companies. You know, uh, with with The resources to create these tools, the Silicon Valley, for instance, which are ultimately power chambers of, you know, echo chambers of power gaps and wealth inequalities and all of those things. And when we shift that power, then what happens to gatekeepers within arts? At the moment, my gatekeeper, for instance, if I'm a visual artist, my gatekeeper is, you know, people who curate galleries, for instance, or people who own those spaces. But if I, if with the advent of AI, will that just shift to people who own these software companies then or, or who are sitting in a room deciding what, how these software companies or how these softwares are going to be patented and how distributed, you know? So it's, it's kind of like a tussle in my mind at the moment and I don't know which side, which, but, but as, as my positionality as an artist, I would of course like want the authenticity of the creator to be still there because I think the process matters, not just the output.
0: Yeah. And so as I'm afraid, if you can believe it, we've shot past our hour already. (laughs) It's a typical problem in this podcast series. But if I can just um, finish off with it, just with a couple more points. Um, But in terms of what you were just saying, um You've also referred to Dismantling Power Lock-Ins, One Poem at a Time, and maybe just a sort of brief overview for the listener, what your your thinking is behind that. And it's an interesting assertion, isn't it, of the role the arts have, and and perhaps in response to the series question, Can Art Save Us? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, um, I think while on the individual level, art, can save individuals or artists themselves or even the audience through catharsis, through through finding a voice, through finding self-empowerment. It can save communities on a second level then through um, uh, communities claiming, reclaiming spaces through particular art forms and reclaiming their own identities, collective identities. The third level would be, again, thinking on a larger social political level where I talk about these power structures and dismantling them one poem at a time. time. What I really mean with that phrase is, I think if we were to look at art as something that um, is a social system, which is exclusive because of gatekeeping, which is reflexive because it shapes um, and reflects the environment it's it's environment simultaneously the world around us it's it's doing both those things together which which is why it's reflexive and the third being adaptive because of the silences um, and the the space that leaves you know scope to inter, scope for further interpretation as societies move forward and as people absorbing and consuming those art forms change I think when Anything when anything happens in the world which is you know ugly and which is not which shouldn't have happened historically the masses have not um, gone to the social legal political institutions because that's those are the institutions which have contributed to those inequalities and those power gaps which have led to you know the the kind of exclusion that is, unfortunately, still exists in our society and is going to be there for a long time because of gatekeeping. Uh, They have always, like people or the masses who are not part of these institutions, have always traditionally, historically fallen back on art in protests. Um, You pick up any protest story in the history of the world anywhere, what is it that people are using as a tool to speak up? It's art, you know, in the form of slogans, in the form of rhyme, in the form of rhythm, music, um, paintings, graffiti, all of these things, you know. Um, so I think that is where art exceptionalism comes in. And that is what I mean by dismantling power Lokins, one poem, even one painting, one performance, uh, and so on and so forth at a time, because that's what we are using to speak up to the institutions uh, and to other social systems which are just carriers of these power lock-ins that I talk about.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's very interesting. And, and also I think history shows a very clear uh, relationship um, to the arts and revolution, the power of change, that it is and can be a space for, for positive change. Um, it really does have the ability to dismantle power and unfortunately, because we have shot past our hours so quickly, I'm just hoping that you will have inspired listeners today to feel that they too can own and express uh, their own voices. And, And I really do admire how you are brave enough to use yours. You know, at the beginning, we talked about the fact that you have to take risks in terms of the position in your family, you know, the cultural norms um that your that your family may feel conflicted by um you you have you're having to demonstrate a lot of courage um to pursue your your creative pathway and I really do hope that you will be seen on your elastic trampoline
1: (laughs) well thank you so much Paula it has such it's been such a pleasure Um, to talk to you and to be able to comprehend these ideas out loud and thank you so so much for giving a platform to my story um, to the history to whatever extent we've been able to talk about of my people and to my journey and thank you so much once again for having me amongst the list of extremely accomplished and wonderful guests that you have and thank you so much for keeping your podcast accessible as well I think that's that's really important and I'd give you a big shout out for um
0: well <laughs> thank you very much um uh, it is something I am going to insist on that this remains a free to listen podcast and and any listeners now um I uh, do not intend to introduce paid tiers or paying for exclusive content. For me, that betrays all of the issues around arts, accessibility, and I'm not going to introduce the same elitist power structures. So thank you for acknowledging that.
1: No, thank you. And I wish all gatekeepers had the same sort of... um, yeah, ethos and um, ideologies as you, because if that were true, then we wouldn't have the problems of art elitism and all of these things. So,
0: yeah, it, it is as simple as it is, it is a statement of being pro arts equality. So, <laughs> um, Thank, thank you again um, for your time. Thank you for showing the courage that you have shown and continue to show. And I'll be following you, as I say, on your elastic trampoline with interest.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: thank you so much. Shana. Thank you. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.